Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, broadcaster and author, but for the purposes of this podcast, I am your chief investigator into images. I want to decode, unpick, unravel some of the world's most beautiful artworks across time. And every week I am joined by a fellow investigator who will help me to pull them apart. And I am absolutely honoured this week because I'm in the company of someone who I have idolised for a long time, Professor Martin Kemp. Emeritus Professor of Art History at Oxford University. We were just saying, what a title. (laughs) But also author of some of my favourite books. My favourite, From Christ to Coke. I think that's a very good title for a book. (laughs) Run book with a good title. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. But we're we're friends and neighbours. We're very fortunate to to actually live near each other as well. Indeed, you're just down the road, yes. I am. And so a pleasure to be able to pick the brains of of possibly one of the, the, the best art historians in the world and certainly the leading expert on Leonardo, who is the artist we're scrutinizing today. Now, I promised you big hits on this podcast, and it doesn't get bigger than what we're talking about today. We are talking about Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, the most famous painting of all time. I think, can I, am I right in saying that, Martin? Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's almost the most famous image in, in global terms. You know, think of an image of, of anything and... Uh, I've done radio programs with Africa and Japan and everywhere. Um, It is extraordinary. Mm. And we should give some of the basics. So date, always a subject of issue with Leonardo, but what do we say, 1503? 1503 is good because relatively recently we found a book in which somebody who knew Leonardo wrote that he was engaged upon certain works. He was doing a Madonna Child and St. Anne, which we know he was doing. He was commissioned to paint a battle in the Council Hall of Florentine Republic, and he was painting the wife of Francesco del Giocondo. So this is fairly new. So we know it was started in 1503. Leonardo was slow. Yes. Slow. And he big... didn't finish often, did he? That's the other thing we should it, mention. He, this is finished. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, yes, it, it, it probably is finished. There might be one or two bits we can look at. But yeah, people say he didn't finish things. But the Mona Lisa is finished. It's the world's most, most famous picture. 
Second most famous picture, The Last Supper. Last Supper yeah. He finished that. And the world's most famous drawing, Vitruvian The Vitruvian Man, man The mm. Man in the Square and the Circle. He finished that. Now that's... Pretty good going. Not bad. If you're going to finish three things, finish the three most famous images <laughs> of all time. <laughs> and um, and it's oil on poplar wood, so Indeed. panel, and uh, it hangs in the Louvre in Paris. And dimensions-wise, it's 77 centimetres by 53. So glad, I've you, got, glad you remember that. Yeah, I've got all the nitty-gritty out of the way for you, Martin. Now we can just wax lyrical. What is it about this image that has captured imaginations for centuries in a sense it's a very simple image it's a portrait of a bourgeois florentine woman uh, almost certainly although people want to make a fuss about this almost certainly lisa garadini which is her unmarried name the garadini were landed gentry but rather on their uppers they they weren't in the, the best financial state and she married Francesco del Giacondo. Because mm, this painting is sometimes called the G La Giacondo. La Giacondo, that's where the name comes from. Mm. And it was almost certainly that in Leonardo's lifetime. She was known as La Gioconda, who was a kind of nickname. There's a twist, though, isn't it? Because doesn't Gioconda mean um, jovial and it, it, yeah, amused? It, yeah, basically it does. Yeah, and so, that kind of is the smile. You could look yeah, at it yeah. as being about being bemused. And, and, and I think Vasari writes about her being entertained by buffoons while she sat, doesn't she? So there's yeah. sort of a subtext on the name, but indeed. But uh, no, it, it works very well in those dimensions. But basically, she is the wife of Francesco del Giocondo. Um, it's new money. Francesco was a sharp operator. He was a silk merchant, but he also lent money. He imported all sorts of stuff from around the world, including leather from Ireland and sugar from the Canary Islands. So. No, he was a he was an operator, big time, and she was gracious old aristocracy. So it's new money and uh, and old aristocracy. And there's there's a lot of intrigue into who she was, but also why he painted her. Because at this stage, if we're thinking this is painted, as you say, it's recorded that this was this was being painted around 1503. He was not taking commissions for portraiture, particularly at that time, was he? So why did he paint this wife of a merchant, essentially? <laughs> well, what we have, and uh, with an Italian colleague, Giuseppe Palanti, in spring we're publishing a new book, we've got lots of evidence about the relationship between Leonardo's father, Sir Piero da Vinci, who was a big lawyer in Florence. He was well up in the legal system, and we've got lots of evidence tying him into Leonardo's father. And we've got them circulating in the same orbit at the same time. Am and I right I, in thinking they actually lived opposite each other as well? Uh, they live close to each close other. Close to each yes. other. Yeah. yeah. So that, I suspect, you know, these things all work in human terms that... Uh, uh, Francesco de Giocondo, his fa Leonardo's father, was doing legal work and said, no, look, come on. <laughs> Uh, I'll yeah, give you and, a free Leonardo painting yeah, if yeah. you don't. It, <laughs> exactly, I can have a word with my son, and uh, he didn't. He was illegitimate, but um, he was always called Leonardo di Ser Piero da Vinci, which he was not. So he was fully acknowledged in that sense as the son of this very important lawyer. Um, we don't know a great deal about their relationship. Was Leonardo is a very private person. He doesn't write about his personal relationships in that sense. But um, no, there was clearly leverage via the uh, network of the friendship between um, Francesco and um, 
and Leonardo's father. And there's certainly a relationship between the two because, I mean, there are Freudian connections and things like his Madonna where you have connections to Piero's later wives and he's part of the family. I mean, he's acknowledged and he's he's appreciated by his father, I think. So the idea yeah. he could do this for one of his father's clients... I think holds true, doesn't it? So this is all coming out in your new book, though. This is all yeah. The, new the bits of this published it? before, yeah. Well, Giuseppe, the, my co-author, has got lots of new documentation, absolutely amazing things, which I'm not telling you because I can't ah. give I can't give away all his secrets. So. <laughs> when the microphones are off, you can. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this it, this is the wonderful world of Leonardo, though, isn't it? There's still so much to discover, and yeah. people are out there constantly probing for for new. Leonardo's. Um, you have worked in this field for a long time, and it's not easy, is it? Because you get bombarded with, is this a real Leonardo? Is Can you attribute it? Can you say, how yeah. is that as an art historian? Well, I got bombarded with two aspects of uh, what I call the Leonardo lunis. Yes. Uh, one is the issue of attributions. You get sent totally bizarre things. I've been sent a, an 18th century engraving as a Leonardo painting. And yeah. I said, well, this is an 18th century engraving. And they say, no, Leonardo was a genius. He invented via painting this 18th century engraving technique. And, <laughs> and you, you, you can't win in that sense. So there's, there's the attribution madness. And although I have been sent two real things as it happens but over 40 years that's not a very <laughs> it's high not a great success strike, rate <laughs> striking rate because your uh, inbox is bombarded i mean we have talked about this in the past yeah. and i i feel for you that but, but, everything with a leonardo tag comes to you <laughs> but the other element are the secrets mm. and this is partly dan brown and the da vinci code that people now think there are secret codes hidden in the paintings if they look hard enough particularly at pretty low-grade reproductions, they can see all sorts of things like alligators and numbers and Persian handwriting and <laughs> all manner of stuff in, in the Mona Lisa. And, uh, yeah, I get sent these these secrets. And um, I always try to respond politely, mm. even though they're no starters. And occasionally people just drop out. And some are very persistent. Some go on for years and some end up by hate, hurling torrents of abuse. Well, I would not like to be in your position in that respect, but what it has given you is a fine eye for appreciating what's authentic and what isn't when it comes to the big man. And and he is a big name. I mean, he is justifiably recognised amongst if as amongst the finest artists, if not the finest. But but particularly, what interests me, and actually, why I can see you, why you're drawn to him. You have a background in science, don't you, Martin? And he is the polymath. He is the mm. one that that brings these different disciplines together in a way that we've forgotten. We box up our disciplines and subjects now, don't we? Mm. We we divide our science from our humanities. But the real the real achievement of what he does is you know, he is the brains behind the helicopter potentially, and yet he can create art so exquisite that a pure expression captivates generations. Mm. Um, is that why you were drawn to him? I was... I kept out of the way of Leonardo initially. He looked big and difficult. <laughs> when I was doing graduate work, I thought, oh, God, you know, this looks particularly daunting. And I thought, uh, either you do it properly or not at all. And then a young TV producer approached me, having obviously talked to much bigger and more senior figures, and mm -hmm. said, I'm doing my diploma program on Leonardo. I want to do the water drawings. Would you help me? 
So I thought, well, I'd better look at Leonardo. Ernst Gombrich, the great art historian, gave us an unpublished paper on Leonardo's water drawings. Amazing and stuff, yeah. I read that and I thought, ah, I know what's going on here. I think Ernst got some of it slightly wrong, but um, mm. but what he was trying to do was, was just spectacularly good. And it's to explain that Leonardo used to study currents, didn't he, and talk about the, I mean, it's yeah. the scientific depth of his diagrams. Absolutely. Mm. So uh, having done natural sciences at Cambridge, I thought, where do I begin with Leonardo? And I began with the anatomicals. Yes. So I sat in a rather cold Glasgow flat with an enormous ceiling in front of a little gas fire. <laughs> Um, this is a real sub story. Uh, <laughs> and I went through all the anatomical drawings, the text, the images, and so on. And I then went back to Windsor to look at the originals. And I'd been born in Windsor. So uh, is... Yes, well, we have this in common our, our shared connection with the, the Slough Windsor Eaton area, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, having, a, having a science degree helped. It meant I wasn't scared of the science, but the science is very different. Mm how Leonardo proceeded, but I got a sense, which I spent most of my career doing, is that Leonardo is not diverse. He was looking at all these things as symptoms of a common core of uh, laws of how things worked. So if you looked at the body of the earth with its seas and its rivers and everything, you looked at the body of man or body of woman, then these were working according to the same principles. Um, hair curled like water, etc., etc. So rather than it being diverse, the outputs are diverse, but the common core of beliefs is absolutely, uh, absolutely simple and consistent. Um, so what I've spent my career doing really is saying Leonardo is about the unity of things, the sharedness of things, rather than the diversity of things. And he puts that in Mona Lisa in a way. He does. And that brings us back to the Mona Lisa. And actually, it was interesting you mentioned the Windsor sketches, because I believe amongst those, there's a number of sketches of the mouth and the workings of how the lips and the, the palette works to create smiles. And so potentially, the thing I'm sure that everybody is captivated by is her smile. And in a way, that brings it all together, doesn't it? That, that he's doing these anatomical drawings. He's looking at the science of, hu of what the human body does. Yeah. Didn't he find the valves of the heart? Am I wrong? That he, he did the first discoveries of... He didn't find the valves of the heart, but he was the first person who worked out how they operated. Mm. Yeah, he um, draws the valve, uh, the, 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 the connection. Yeah. There's, there are, the aortic valves have three cusps, um, and what Leonardo looked at when he was dissecting, and he dissected an ox heart for the most part, not the human heart, mm -hmm. he could see that they didn't have any muscles, they didn't have any strings to pull them, as it were. So you had these three fleshy collapsible cusps, and they were passive valves. They, mm -hmm. they, they didn't operate themselves. So he worked out that these cup-shaped valves, the blood was pushed through from underneath. Currents, currents yep, and movement. Get, get, yeah. And they would then hit the constrained neck of the aorta and would spiral back yeah. to fill the cusps, um, which is exactly is, how they work. And this is a huge medical discovery. I mean, we, we, we have to lay these sorts of achievements at his yeah, door as well. But, <laughs> but he, he couldn't discover it by looking at the movement of blood. He knew about that. Was He, he was a hydraulic engineer. He knew how water poured through apertures. He knew how it did vortex patterns and so on. So it's transfer of knowledge in, in, our, in our jargon. He knew 
how water reacted in various circumstances. And then he puts that through into the valves of the heart. So this brings me brings us back to the idea that the sharedness of things, that the explanation as to why a bank is being eroded by vortices mm. is is the same explanation as to why the heart can harness this energy to operate the heart valves. And and that again brings us to this idea of him as the polymath, the Renaissance man, the idea he can draw this knowledge together. The, the bit of the, the Leonardo story I always find extraordinary is the fact that he did. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good paint. And um, because he's, he's so interested in engineering, mm. he's so interested in sciences, when he paints, he paints exquisitely well, doesn't he? It, mm. What is it about his style that is so extraordinary? Well, what he's doing in painting, which we probably establish, it it is the ultimate way of saying how nature works. If he's painting a sitter, if, if Lisa is sitting there, and she probably didn't sit for very long, but if she is sitting there, he is not imitating her. He's remaking her according to how he knows the world works. He's remaking the face of the woman, as you said, you know, knowing how the muscles of the mouth work. He's interested in the structure of the eyes he dissects eyes etc um, so and he's looking at how light and shade hit surfaces what happens when light hits a glancing blow what happens when it hits a direct blow and so on so he is remaking the world in his art and science if he makes a flying machine he calls it a yocello a great bird <laughs> So he's remaking a bird, not literally imitating a bird, but he's saying, 
I can make a bird-like thing through knowing how birds work. Mm. So he's making a woman-like thing in a way through his understanding of the human body and the understanding of light, the understanding of how hair works and going through into the landscape. So um, the, the painting is the ultimate expression, really, to say, I know how nature works. Amazing. I think that, so that might be why Mona, Mona Lisa has captured imaginations. To me, it's such a difficult one to understand why this one painting has has drawn people again and again. Yeah. The argument is it's the smile, it's the gaze, but I think there's more going on here, isn't there? This is a fully worked out Leonardo that he has returned to and completed. Um, I mean, we know he's returned to it and possibly reworked it quite dramatically over time. Sure. Tell me a bit about that, Martin. Well, it began as a portrait of a bourgeois Florentine woman who did what she was meant to do. She got married fairly young and she produced babies. Um, people don't like that in a way. It's not dramatic enough. You know, mm. they want to be some story like she's some great courtesan or a noble figure or I get told she's an Egyptian goddess. and all sure she is. All, yeah. All, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, I got that wrong. Um, but... Um, what you see happening in the picture, and we now know to some extent what's underneath the top layer. It, it's confusing, but there is all sorts of changes going on. And we should note at this point, this is why I think this podcast is so exciting to be talking to you about this right now, because the discoveries coming out, obviously, are going to illuminate them more in your book. But some very good new scientific evidence is coming to light with regard to this very old and famous painting, isn't yeah. it? We know through the work of somebody I've collaborated with, Pascal Cotte in Paris of Lumiere Technology, um, he has a technique which gets out much more from the lower layers than we previously could. We could use x-rays before an infrared light, but it was limited. Um, he's getting out much more. So we know that this portrait underwent a big evolution. Mm. I found it very uncanny, I have to say, because obviously I, I've, I've looked into this and I've seen the, the images that were coming out from these new scans. They made me go goosebumpy because it does look like <laughs> yeah. there's another painting underneath. To me, um, yeah. you know more about the layers, the, te yeah. the, 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 the problems with these uh, investigations, but there is something quite important underneath. The Isn't painting there? develops organically. It doesn't, as has been claimed, it doesn't go through sort of three separate pictures, but it's a, it's an organic evolution with changes here, changes there, and so on. And the broad thrust of that is to take it away from being a mugshot, a portrait of, uh, of Lisa, into what I'm calling a universal picture, in which he pours enormous amounts of knowledge and he kept it with him, along with one or two other of his major pictures. But I think it became a manifesto. It's what he showed visitors. And he since said, this is what I can do. And it's got so much in it that that's one reason why you can get so much out of it. If you're a geologist, you can think about the history of the body of the earth. If you're a psychologist, you can think about the, the expression. If you're a interested in the physics of drapery as I call it you can work out how the draperies work if you're interested in the poetry of a woman then you can look at the woman's smile the woman's eyes what Dante calls in her eyes and in her sweet smile um, you can get there's so much gone into this that you can keep getting out of it. It's like a great Shakespeare play in a way the, the, the reason these great works of art persist is 
so much went in and you can look at it and get something out of it. I can look at it, get something out of it. And somebody else can look at it, get something out of it. Different things, but and they're all valid. And this is this is the beauty mm. of doing detective work on on art in a way, because we have this story about a portrait made in 1503 for a patron who wanted an image of his wife that looked nice, beautiful, young. And what we see over this evolution, particularly as Leonardo is going into later age, would we think this was finished probably about 1514 or 15? Yeah, it takes quite a long time, I think. Mm. Uh, My feeling is it was finished when he was in Rome. He was in Rome 1513, 1516, and there's evidence that his patron in Rome, who was one of the great Medici family, Giuliano, um, my it's tentative at this stage, but my sense is that Giuliano said, "Look, I'd like that. Finish it off. Yeah. You know, as a as a bella donna, as a beautiful woman, it's the first portrait that becomes a picture, mm. and it has a an independent life as a picture, not just as a portrait." That's fabulous. That's it. So the next, so that's like this idea that he he did worry away at things. He picked away at things. He he returned to things, and this idea that when he's in Rome and he's finishing it for his new patron, for the Medici's, this becomes not a portrait but a but a painting that is more more like Vitruvian Man, a big statement about humanity in a way, mm. isn't it? Portraits up to that point had been functional things, but we have it happening in Venice with Giorgione and Titian. They're beginning to paint beautiful women who make beautiful pictures and the sitter is is of less importance. It's, so it's not like a snapshot of your family member. It's a more idealised portrait of, of a woman, a beautiful woman. Yeah, it's a very, very, very soft focus work, <laughs> like a like a nineteen thirties film star. Uh, yeah, your uh, wife dressed in sort of <laughs> really with a really soft focus lens. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not absolutely. It's not about the realism because I think uh, that's one of the things we forget with art. So much of it is about capturing reality. You know, you want a picture yeah, of your yeah. dog. You want a picture of your estate. You want a right. picture of your wife. This is more than that this is more than capturing a woman isn't it what the great artists do they make fields for interpretation they're not simply saying i'm giving you this get on with it Um, they're leaving things open suggestive variable it's why for all the science in this it's not a work of science Mm -hmm. if leonardo is writing a work of science he says if you throw something twice as hard it goes twice the distance Uh, no argument about that it's actually not right but uh, anyway (laughs) um but here in the work of art is an enormous amount of what we might call scientific input of scientific knowledge in it but at the end it's a poetic object which is inviting you to interpret it so it's an open field it's it's not dogmatic and the great artists know how to do that the lesser artists tend to give you something which they dump as a kind of ready-made thing for you to get on with and there's not much latitude the really great artists um uh, allow all the viewers some kind of different access, maybe a shared access, um, so we can always get more out of it, like a great piece of music. That, uh, you know, the performers are great music, so each time I find something different. And in a sense, I mean, this is a this is a sort of roundabout way of saying that, <laughs> as the expert, you don't entirely know everything that's going on in this image because everybody brings something else don't they that's the that's the beauty of teaching artworks year after year that I find is every every (laughs) student I teach it to will see something I hadn't seen before Um, it does rather frustrate when you're looking for meaning 
But that's the whole point of this, isn't it? It's not an allegory. There's not a story or a narrative that you can pull out of it. And yet it's a constantly giving image um, with so much going on. There's always a lot of talk, isn't there, about the line of the the horizon in the background. Uh, What what do we make of that? Well, let's look at the landscape. There Mm. there is a sort of story going on here. In in the Renaissance narrative paintings, the Historia, the Historia was the great achievement. To tell the great story, art that signifies great things, which is what a phrase that Leonardo uses. Now, what's happening in the background here? Leonardo, in 15.3, was working on a project for a Florentine canal. And he began to look at rivers and cuttings and mountains and he noted that where the rivers slice through mountains you got what we call strata of fossils he called them shells um, he didn't have the word fossils and he decided that the body of the earth had an immensely long history which was not a standard thing at the time at all and was potentially rather heretical absolutely yes. and he says well you know this can't just be the biblical deluge because you've got all these different layers and he could see that these were the pro- subject to they were the product of enormous a- ages of time so he decides that the earth has this immensely long history and looking at tuscany he decides that originally the arno valley was two great lakes there was a high lake up near Arezzo, there was one near Florence, and the sea came in a lot further at that point, and eventually there was erosion, and the uh, the lower of these lakes burst through into the Mediterranean, and the upper lake then burst through, and they turned into rivers. I mean, this is why he's seen as the father of geology as much as everything else, all his other amazing Yeah, interestingly, the Codex Lester, which Bill Gates owned, this was much known. This was a much copied work. We we think Leonardo didn't have much impact upon science, but um, but we know now that this was copied and it was available in all sorts of major intellectual centres. Anyway, coming back to this, what we can see in in the Mona Lisa landscape, oh, gosh, yes. you've got lakes at different sizes. You've got this ultimately this high lake on the right will burst through to the lower lake this dried up riverbed here will be re-irrigated it will be flooded Um, this rather gentle stream on the right with river on the right with its bridge is going to get completely inundated these mountains up here which look pretty unstable are going to collapse so um, the woman's body is undergoing enormous change in time from birth to maturity to childbirth to death And in one of his famous anatomical drawings, the whole irrigation system of a woman, he talks about um, decay and renewal. He's not talking about what we think of as anatomy. So there's an enormous amount of time embedded in this, the time of the woman's life um, and the the immensely bigger time of... um, uh, of the landscape itself. Walter Pater got this absolutely in one when he wrote in the 19th century in the Renaissance about this. He said, she is older than the rocks amongst which she sits. Oh, I love that. Which is kind of... <laughs> but there's that wonderful mother goddess thing going on here. Yeah, yeah. Which, which in a sense is incredibly poetic and pretentious, but he's, <laughs> but he's got it in a way. He has. Yeah. I am so staggered because, of course, I, I knew that there were issues with the 
with the horizon and with the layout. But of course, when you put it like that and you put it against the context of this text that he is writing about the evolution of, of this area, yeah. it's an advert, isn't it? In many ways. As you say, he kept it with him and manifesto, yeah. but also you yeah. know, in my yeah. other works I have explored. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's showing all the things he's capable of. It's become a, a philosophical picture. Um, he's one of the things he's greatly taken by as a motif is the microcosm and macrocosm. The microcosm being the lesser world, as he puts it, which is the body of the person, the body of the human being, and the macrocosm, the greater world. And he will see the rocks as bones. He will see a circulatory, well, it's not circulatory because it doesn't circulate. He would see an irrigation system in the human body, an irrigation system in in the world, um, the flesh as the soil, and so on. So this picture is very deeply about the essential unity of form, function and process between the body of the woman and the body of the world. Amazing. <laughs> There's a reason that this is the most famous painting. And the more I listen to you talk about it, Martin, the more I am yeah, goosebumpy, excited. I am delighted that you are going to be writing this remarkable book on it. I can't wait to read it, particularly the bit about secrets and all the, the nutty ideas that you've had to dissect over the years. Um, what a pleasure. It's so lovely to talk to you about it. I hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, it's been my pleasure, apart from the excessive praise. <laughs> <laughs> that comes as part of the course with me. Um, no, it's wonderful. And I hope that you listeners have enjoyed it as well. If you have, there's lots more of this to come. You can subscribe to the podcast through historyhit.com slash artdetective. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Yanina Ramirez. And just tune in week after week because every week I'm going to bring you surprising artworks and wonderful contributors it just remains for me to say, Martin Kemp, Professor Martin Kemp, <laughs> you have been such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Nina and Tom. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.